Revelation 11 and verse number 19, it says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. And what I want to speak about here this morning is the ark of the testimony that we read about. John saw it when the temple of God in heaven was opened, and there we see what is referred to here as the Ark of the Testament. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us as we look at his word today. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that we know that this Bible is the very words of God. And Lord, you've given us doctrine, you've given us prophecy, you've given us the things that we need to know and understand, you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And Lord, we thank you for freely giving us this understanding, and yet we confess to you that there are so many complex scriptures and so many things that, Lord, we don't, we don't understand everything about them, but Lord, help us to, help us to teach and to preach with the authority that you have given us, Lord, not us, not our authority, but the authority here of your word. And we pray now that you would help us to keep this concise, Lord, that uh, it would be understandable and just help us to learn and to grow and have your will and way with the truth presented today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So one of the last things that we read about after this seventh trumpet sounds, we saw last week about the wrath and judgment of God. Uh, We have seen previously about worship and a number of other things that take place in verses 15 through verse number 18. But the last thing that John talks about is what he saw in heaven, the temple of God being opened. And I want to remind you that Exodus 25 and verse number 40, that God said to Moses, look thou, look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. When Moses made the tabernacle and all of the furnishings, he didn't create them. He wasn't an artist. He told Bezaliel and Aholiab and all of those wise-hearted craftsmen who actually made the furnishings of the tabernacle and made the tabernacle itself, and uh, whether it be the things of wood and gold and the badger skins and all those things that you have no doubt read about, when they, they were made, it wasn't Moses or these craftsmen artistic ability. It was what God had showed Moses. He didn't have a blueprint, but God had revealed to him a pattern. And so many of these furnishings and things that we find in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, these are things that actually appear in heaven as well. Now, it is safe to say that the ark here is significant with Israel. In verse number 15 of the same chapter, we find that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne of his father David. The Bible teaches us that Israel is going to be the chief of nations. And so this is a time period where this ark appears. And there's no doubt in my mind that there is a connection between the ark of the Testament that we just read about and the children of Israel. 
If you were to hold your plates and look just a few pages over to Revelation chapter 15, and we see in verse number 5, it says, After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. So a little bit different terminology, but this is the same place. This is the same thing that John is seeing here. And this appears right after uh, we see narrative in the first part of chapter 15 of Israelites who had gotten victory over the beast and they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So there's no doubt in my mind, as we've seen before, that this tribulation period is focused primarily on bringing Israel back to the Lord, accepting their Messiah, and then Jesus Christ coming back and ruling and reigning. Now, the first thing that I want to talk about here this morning is the terminology of the ark. We just saw two different passages where the terminology is different. And no doubt when we read, when it said the Ark of the Testament, if you're familiar with your Bible, you were probably scratching your head and saying, now wait a minute, that's not what I recall it being referred to back in the book of Exodus. Well, you're exactly right. In fact, this passage here in Revelation chapter number 11 is the only place in the Bible in which the Ark is referred to as the Ark of the Testament. It's normally referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. In this passage alone, the Ark of the Testament, uh, we find it in the Scripture referred to as the Ark of God, the Ark of Thy Strength, and then also the Holy Ark. So these are all different descriptive terms describing very likely the same thing. Now, as we think of terminology, the first thing that I want to point out that you need to know and understand, if you're going to understand this doctrine, is the terms testimony versus testament. Now, those are used interchangeable in Revelation 11.19 and Revelation 15.5, testimony and testament. And although both terms relate to evidence... Testimony refers to evidence from a witness, while testament is tangible proof or evidence. And that's why the Ark of the Testament, that Ark itself, was tangible evidence. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you might recall that back in the Exodus times, back in Moses' days, that they were told to put certain things in that Ark, like the tables, the Ten Commandments written on stone, like Aaron's rod that budded, like a pot full of manna. Those were all testaments. They were, they were literal, physical evidence that were a testimony to something, whereas the term testimony can be like a verbal testimony. And a lot of times, if you've ever observed in a courtroom environment, maybe some of you have, uh, have watched Perry Mason or some of you that are not quite that old watched Matlock. And maybe those of you that are younger than that, you probably watched some nonsensical show that you probably shouldn't have been watching anyways. How was that? How'd I do? (laughs) 
I've had to, as a pastor, sit in courtroom environments. What a lot of people don't realize that many, the average court case is not like you have one case that's on a docket at one specific time. Usually what happens is you're scheduled for a time frame and you don't know when your case is going to come up. There's a list of maybe 20 cases. And if you go to support a friend in a legal uh, courtroom situation, you may have to sit through five or six or more proceedings until the person you're there for actually gets to have their case heard before the judge. And I tell you, as a pastor, I've had to sit through a lot of courtroom environments that it's like, I wish I wasn't here. Like, I need to leave this place and go take a shower because I feel filthy just knowing all of the junk that goes on in our culture around us. It's like, man, I think I'd rather go watch Jerry Springer than have to sit in this courtroom. But that's pretty bad, isn't it? So testimony and testament, both are related to evidence, but there is a slight difference. Now, the two terms that I want to point out that are very different, and listen, what I'm getting ready to show you, I I assure you, and I've studied a lot of commentaries, I've heard what great men have to say when it comes to the teaching of the Word of God, especially uh, commentaries on the book of Hebrews. What I'm getting ready to show you, I, I am confident beyond any shadow of a doubt, that what I'm going to show you is correct, but I'm going to forewarn you that there are many good men that either they see it differently or perhaps maybe they were taught it differently. And that is these two terms, testament versus covenant. Testament and covenant are two very different things. A covenant is a conditional agreement between two or more parties. Whereas a testament, as we've already seen, is evidence of the bestowing of one's blessings upon death. We read a person's last will and testament. And that testament is related to death. We read in Hebrews 9, verse number 16, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. That's the person who wrote that testament Uh, For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Listen, if I put you in my will that I'm going to give you my stuff, you can't have it until I'm dead. It's not of any force. Well, you know, I, I was written in their will and their last will and testament. Well, it's not of any force until the testator has died. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Whenever you see testament here in the Bible, it's going to have some kind of a connection to death and to blood. Now the New Testament portion of the Bible starts in the book of Matthew. But I I want to remind you that the New Testament does not begin in the book of Matthew. It begins at the end of the book of Matthew. I hope you understand what I'm saying, because Jesus did not die and shed his blood on the cross until the end of the book. And there are a lot of doctrinal misunderstandings and confusions that take place when we assume that everything that is written, starting in the book of Matthew on, doctrinally applies to us. Let me tell you something. You get to Matthew chapter 24... 
And Jesus said, they that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Listen, he's not talking about our salvation. He's talking about the children of Israel enduring to the end of the tribulation period. The whole context is kingdom, and it's so imperative that we rightly divide the word of truth, and that means a whole lot, and that means dividing the difference between terminology. How many Bible commentaries and teachers and preachers have I heard use the term covenant and testament totally interchangeable as if they are speaking of the same thing, and it just isn't so? So understanding the difference between a covenant and a testament is very, very important. It's also important to remember that the church... Now, I'm going to tell you something. This is controversial, I'm going to admit. And I'm not trying to be controversial, I promise you that. But I believe with all of my heart that the Bible bears witness to what I'm getting ready to say is the truth. And that is this. We need to remember that the church, that's us, we are not part of the covenant. All right? It is common. You've heard, maybe you've heard of covenant theology. You'll find modern church age preachers and teachers talk about the covenant, the covenant, the covenant. You search that out and rightly divide the word of truth. You find that the covenant is not about the church. It is about Israel. The old covenant was the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. The new covenant is the covenant that God has offered to Israel. It got suspended during the church age, but it's coming back in the tribulation period. The only time you see the word covenant from the book of Acts to the book of Hebrews, the only time that you see it in the Bible is when it is referring to either one of those covenants. We're not under a covenant. We are under the grace of God. We are under the New Testament. All right? The New Testament begins with the cross of Calvary and it continues. Listen, the effectiveness and the blessings of the blood and death of Jesus Christ will go through all eternity from Calvary's cross all the way. And I'm glad that as a Gentile, part of the body of Christ, saved, born again, I'm glad that I got into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But if you start thinking that the covenant that God made with Israel, old or new, applies to you, you are going to be confused doctrinally. You're going to be applying promises to you that don't belong to you. And then you're going to be frustrated thinking, well, God, you let me down. You didn't keep my promise. And God's saying, I'm sorry, you need to look at it a little closer. I didn't make that promise to you. What about the book of Hebrews? Isn't that to the church? Uh, Well, in the sense that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Listen, you find a ton of New Testament doctrine in the book of Hebrews, and that all applies to us. But you also, if you look at the context, you find people having to labor to enter into his rest. That's millennial. That's kingdom. And when you start mixing the two, you're going to be confused. There are passages in the book of Hebrews that if you look at it and you read it and believe it for, for what it says, it'll tell you that you're, you can lose your salvation. 
And then if you lose it, you can't get it back. But that's not what it's saying. It's talking about something very different. It's talking about the new covenant. And so please, if you don't believe me, if you say, wait a minute, I've heard it the other way all of my life, just study it out for yourself in light of what I just said, and you're going to find some pieces of the puzzle starting to fit together as you read your Bible. I mean, traditional theology and understanding of the New Testament and the book of Hebrews, I'm telling you, so much Bible teaching either leapfrogs certain verses or they explain it away with the Greek language or they take that piece of the doctrinal puzzle and it doesn't fit and they just hammer it until it tries to fit. How many of you put a puzzle together that way? Like, oh yeah, this fits. Here, give me a hammer. (laughs) No, it doesn't fit. But if we rightly divide the word of truth and we understand that terms mean something and covenant and testament are two very different things. Are they connected? Oh, absolutely. Listen, everything is connected to the cross of Calvary, everything to the blood of Jesus Christ. But when God says he's making a new covenant with Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he is not talking about the church. Now, Romans chapter number nine and verse number three. And and let me say this before I read this. We are beneficiaries of the New Testament, but the covenants are with Israel. Romans nine, verse three, Paul said, for I could wish... He didn't say that he did wish. He said, I could wish myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, that's a burden right there, folks. He's saying, I love Israelites so much that I could wish that I went to hell so that they could all be saved. Now, he didn't say, I do wish that because Paul knew that it was not theologically possible. When you're saved by the grace of God, you can't just choose that I don't want it anymore. You got regenerated. You got born again. You got sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Thank God for that. A spiritual circumcision took place. And so, you know, you may, you may have a bad day. Your faith may fail, but the faith of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter number three, never ever fails. All right. Verse four. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers. That's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and so forth. The fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. Hey, I hate to burst your uh, bubble, but Jesus came to the Jew. Yes, and the Gospels make that clear. John chapter number one, he came to his own. Jesus told that Canaanite woman, he said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. She was a Gentile and she was asking him for something. Now, if she would have been like anybody in our modern culture today, she would have went woke on him I mean, she would have went and told the police. It would have been all over, you know, Jerusalem's uh, Facebook or whatever. He, I got, you know, I got treated wrong. I got, uh, what's the word? Yeah, 
not coming to me. She'd go woke on him, but she didn't. She said, truth, Lord, you're right. It's not me to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. I am a dog, but she said, even the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You know what he said? He said, I'm not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. I mean, the, the, the bread who it was intended for, the Israelites are rejecting it. But here's this Canaanitish woman that says, hey, just give me a crumb. And she got a crumb. Amen. And that's where we're at. We're Gentiles. Romans chapter number 11. Study it for yourself. God's not done with Israel, but for now, he set them aside. And because of their fall, he's grafted us in. But the Lord says, be not high-minded. Don't think that God's plan for the ages is about the church and us. We just got in on the blessings. He came to his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. Thank God for the grace of God. I'm so thankful that the church, that us Gentiles, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants and promises. But God said, I'm not going to waste my grace. I'm not going to waste the blood of my son. I'm going to seek out a people and I'm going to use them to provoke Israel to jealousy. I don't know if any of you remember your high school days and how foolish you must have felt when somebody used you to provoke somebody else to jealousy. You say, I don't know that I'm comfortable with God using me to provoke Israel to jealousy. Well, your only other option is going to hell for all eternity. I don't know about you. I'll take it. Amen. I'll take it because I deserve to go to hell and any grace that God would extend to me that I could be saved and be called a child of God. Hey, I'm going to take it even if I know from the scripture that it's not about me, it's about Israel. And so that's some terminology of the ark. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the archaeology of the ark. And this is going to get a little bit extensive I'm going to I'm going to try to stay as slow as I can but I need to get through this and so I'll try to uh, go at a decent pace and you try to listen at a decent pace as well. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 9 when they put the ark of God in the temple that Solomon built it says there was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So in Solomon's temple days, there was no Aaron's rod that budded, there was no pot of manna, and there was no written copy of the entire law. And Deuteronomy 31.26, God said to Moses, not only the tables of the Ten Commandments, but what Moses had been writing, all of those things, he said, I want you to take this book of the law, put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness. Remember that testimony and testament, those are witnesses, those are evidences. He said, I want you to put it there. They're not there. The only thing left in the ark are the tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. Where did everything else go? You know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to it. 
I can remember early on in my Bible student days and, and even maybe not that many years ago that I thought, I wonder what happened. I wonder if maybe the Philistines pilfered the ark. But then I got to thinking, it's like, I don't think they opened it. I mean, they got God smiting their God Dagon just because they captured the ark. God smiting them with emrods and you know, I, I I can't tell you just exactly what emrods are, but I guarantee you they're not nice. I don't think you want them like that. They had all kinds of, I mean, it was bad news. And I just can't help but feel that if the Philistines would have even touched the ark, it would have been pretty bad news for them. So I don't, I don't think that that happened. But somehow the the Levites or the priesthood, something happened to the, Aaron's rod that budded, the manna. And, and you can look at it a number of ways. You can look at it from the standpoint that maybe whoever pilfered it, that they wanted everything that was nostalgic, that might be something that they could show off that was miraculous. Hey, here's a, here's a, a, a dead stick that actually sprouted. Here's a pot of manna that, you know, those are all miraculous things. And while the tables of the testimony are certainly miraculous, let's face it, sometimes the world out there, they they want the blessings of God. They want the provision of God. They want the entertaining things of God. But, you know, those commandment things, let's just leave those alone. I don't know what happened to the other things in the ark, but they were supposed to be there, and yet they weren't. Now, let me say this, and, and please bear with me for any uncertainty. I'm not going to try to teach something if I'm not certain of it. I cannot say for certain that the ark of the Testament in Revelation 11 and 19 is the same one that Moses made, or if it was perhaps maybe the one that is was in heaven that the one Moses made was patterned after. I'm not sure about that. And the reason that I say that I'm not sure about that, I realize that everything that Moses made, God said to make it after the pattern. But if you read the narrative there, the ark itself was not anything. The mercy seat, no doubt about it, there was a pattern there. But God gave the dimensions of that ark. It wasn't something that you had to see a pattern. You just had to follow the instructions. And I'll I'll get to, to why I'm questioning that here in just a moment. But I'm not certain if it's the same ark or if it's a different, if it's the earthly one that we find in heaven. You say, wait a minute, how would the earthly one get in heaven? Well, I'm going to say this. The earthly ark, whether it's the one we just read about in Revelation 11, 19, whether it's that one or not, I do believe that the earthly one is in heaven. And Indiana Jones isn't going to find it. I'll explain why. Here's the following evidence, and you can do what you want with this. First Samuel 4, verse number 21, it says, She named the child Ichabod, saying, 
the glory is departed from Israel. This is after the Philistines captured the ark of God. This was a horrible time for Israel. This is the time of the judges. It's first Samuel, but it's still the time before God gave a king to Israel. The glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. You, you see that this, the glory of the God of Israel is a terminology that's used for the ark of God. Now, go to, uh, hold your place, go to Ezekiel chapter number one. And this is where I, I don't have, we could spend literally three more hours studying through Ezekiel. There's so much here, but what I'm going to do here this morning, for those of you that are interested, I'm going to give you the places, and then we're going to have to be judicious with our time and just read several excerpts, several passages that I believe will at least explain what I'm trying to say here today. In Ezekiel chapter number one, we see some very amazing things going on. Ezekiel sees, now now by the way, in the narrative, Ezekiel is not seeing a vision, all right? This is actually, you don't find the word vision anywhere in this. This is not a dream. This is, according to what Ezekiel is writing, he's actually seeing this, and he sees these four creatures that match the description of the cherubim. And these creatures are all connected to these wheel thingies. I know that's the theological term. Maybe you haven't heard that before. Wheel thingies. Yeah. These, these wheel thingies. And he's seeing these wheels. It's like a, a wheel that's within a wheel. It's like the outside spinning one way, the other's wheels spinning the other way. And, you know, if you've ever looked at a, um, at a, uh, like a, a, a wagon wheel with the spokes, when they're spinning, you get the appearance that the inside's spinning the opposite direction. And so Ezekiel's seeing these wheels. He's seeing them come down from heaven. He's describing in chapter 1 that these wheels are actually animated by the living spirit of the creatures. And so somehow when they're connected, there's eyes in these wheels and he's describing that they're not moving by physiological means. You know, we, we have the, we see jet propulsion today. Back then, you know, they didn't even know what that was. But even if you compare jet propulsion and, you know, if you've ever seen a drone flying, I mean, they can switch directions awfully quick. It's pretty amazing. But Ezekiel's describing these four creatures. They're on their side. They're connected to wheels. And he's seeing that wherever their spirit goes, that's where they go. All simultaneously. No appearance of like a, you know, a flap on a plane that's steering. Everything is instant. Wherever they think, wherever their spirit is thinking to go, they're going simultaneously. Now, I would imagine being alive during times before all of the, the, the graphic science fiction that we have today, I, I think I know what Ezekiel said when he saw that. Nothing. He's just trying to figure out how do I describe this. 
Now, look at chapter 1 and verse number 26. It says, And above the firmament, that's the space that's over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it, and I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from uh, uh, even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about it. Listen, I know what that is. John saw a similar thing in heaven at the throne of God. This is This is the throne of God, and this is Jesus Christ sitting on that throne. The appearance is there. Why do we see these cherubims on their side and attached to these wheels? Because these cherubims that are appear around the throne of God, they have actually transported the throne of God down to not on the earth, but certainly above the earth. And Ezekiel's looking up and he's seeing all of this at the river Chabar. The Holy Spirit puts these little indicators that this was at the river Chabar. This is actually here on the earth where Ezekiel's seeing this. Now, so many more things that we could see here and, 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 and show that what I'm saying at least has some validity to it. But go to Ezekiel chapter number 8. And in Ezekiel chapter number 8, God grabs Ezekiel by the hair of the head. Now, he's never done that with me, but I've felt that way sometimes. When I just, he just couldn't get through to me and he'd do some circumstance. It's like he might as well grab me by the hair of the head. But he grabs Ezekiel by the hair of the head. He transports him to the temple. And this is the temple in Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind, Ezekiel's in captivity at the river Chabar. God grabs him by the hair of the head, transports him to the temple in Jerusalem, and tells him to start digging under the wall. Ezekiel digs under the wall of the temple. He enters in, and the Lord shows him all of the abominations that are taking place inside this temple. And there's some horrible things. I I don't have time to go into it. But look at verse number 4. It says, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. There's that phrase once again, the glory of the God of Israel. Look at Ezekiel 9 and verse number 3. It says, the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And then look at Ezekiel 10 and verse number 18. Ezekiel 10, 18, then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. This is some pretty, pretty, really fantastical stuff going on here that Ezekiel's seeing. And historically speaking, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared during this captivity, and it has never been found since. And trust me, archaeologists and men have tried to find it and spent probably millions of dollars to try to find this Ark of the Covenant. I believe with all of my heart, and you can do whatever you want to with it, this isn't an issue of fellowship, but I believe that God, because Israel, during the captivity, God said, 
I'm putting you on the shelf. This is now the times of the Gentiles. The kingdom is defunct for now. There will not be another king until Messiah comes. And so the whole plan changed. The times of the Gentiles started and God took the Ark of the Covenant back to heaven. Why? Because, because the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it, that was the token, the witness, the evidence of God's presence with Israel. And God is demonstrating that my presence is no longer here. I know God's presence is everywhere, but there is a manifest token of God's presence among his people. And that's to the church age as well, but specifically to Israel, that was the token, that covenant, that testimony that God was among them. My last point here this morning is number three, I want to talk about the theology of the ark. Now, I just said some of it just a a second ago, but uh, Exodus 25, verse number 22, God says, and there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So God's saying that this is the place where I'm going to meet with you. Exodus 30, verse number 6, And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. This was the token of God meeting with them and of his presence. Now the mercy seat where the cherubims were were fashioned, and that was the covering of the ark. And God's presence and communication were always connected to the mercy seat. Now, I find an interesting doctrinal connection in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9 and verse number 1, Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That's our context. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna. Now, I'm not sure if... Hebrews is saying that it's in the cov- in the ark now, or it was, but you had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Verse number five, and over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, watch this, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Why all of a sudden does the writer of Hebrews say, We can't talk about this mercy seat particularly. I mean, there's plenty that we could say about it. It's all throughout the Old Testament. There's plenty of references and texts, but the writer of Hebrews is saying we can't speak of that particularly. Don't you find it interesting that the two Revelation um, passages that we read, Revelation 11.19 and 15.5, we find the Ark of the Testament and the the tabernacle of testimony, but we find nowhere 
In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament portion of Scripture that we find any reference to the mercy seat, and that is that we can't speak of it now in particular. I think that there's doctrinal significance to this. Now, in Mark 15 and verse number 38, when Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. In Jeremiah 3, verse number 16, in those days, this is Jeremiah's prophecy toward the future, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall they come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imaginations of their evil heart. You know why the Ark of the Covenant is going to be irrelevant when this day comes? Because they don't need a token. Jesus is there. He's on the throne. He's present. And that's why that mercy seat, we can't speak of it now particular because it's a shadow of things. It's the past. It's been fulfilled We have Jesus Christ when he's sitting on his throne. We have that mercy seat in person and all of these tokens have been fulfilled. And then I'll conclude with this. And please forgive me if I have raised more questions than answers, but that's really not a bad thing because you can study this out. Ezekiel, Revelation, Jeremiah, Hebrews, If you'll study it for yourself, you're going to see these connections are pretty crystal clear in light of what we said here today. In conclusions, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. That veil of the temple that was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, that was just a picture of Jesus Christ. His flesh, his death and his blood on the cross of Calvary is what opened up the way to you and I to go directly into the holy of holies. We can go straight to God and to the mercy seat. We don't need a Levitical priesthood. We don't need a blood sacrifice. It all has been fulfilled by Jesus, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the high priest. All of our salvation is complete. Every aspect, 360 degrees, it all is complete in Jesus Christ. Your way to to God is not through religion. It's not through ceremony. It's not through your good works. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank God we've got access. We don't need a box as a reminder that's got stuff in it from the past. We've got the scripture that tells us about the cross of Calvary. That is our ark. That is our token of salvation.